Welcome everyone to SaaScast, the podcast that talks you through the steps you need to future-proof your product, whether that's building the ultimate marketing team or taking your products global. Our guests will help you grow, scale up, and work smarter. So today we're privileged to be joined by Jacqueline Porter, Director of Product Management at GitLab. With several years of experience as a product and project manager, Jacqueline knows how to lead teams to achieve that product roadmap vision in line with customer needs and those all-important KPIs and growth metrics. So today's subject is driving profitable products with customers. Uh, very much in line with what I was saying, it's, it's about how do we achieve that product roadmap vision, um, making sure that it's meeting the customer pain points at the same time, making sure that we're, you know, it's in line with growth, um, the growth metrics that we're always focused on uh, in our organizations and SaaS organizations are concerned with. So um, first of all, I'd just like to say thank you, Jackie, for um, for joining us today. It's a privilege to have you here. Oh, I'm so jazzed about this topic and really excited to be working with you on this, on this adventure here. I, I think it's going to be great for the audience to hear some different perspectives. So I'm excited. Great. That's fantastic. So to get started, um, I just think our listeners would just love to hear about, um, because I looked through your profile um, quite a bit, and I know you've had several years of experience doing this, and I'm, am I right in thinking as well that during, uh, during your education as well, you also had experience with project management and um, during college days? So I'm just kind of wondering, like, what what is it about product management that drew you down that path, and why has it been such a kind of enduring passion for you? Yeah, this is always such a fun question for me to, to reflect on. Uh, for the last 10 years, I've been in the tech space. I've been working with companies on building successful products and delivering successful products to market. Uh, but also a key part of that is working with developers and engineers day in, day out, uh, and helping optimize that, those performance uh, of those teams. Uh, I did have an untraditional start though. Uh, my first career, which I spent about four to six years in was in construction management. And most people may not be aware of that uh, in, in how technical that discipline is and that there's a lot of software uh, in the construction industry used to plan, used to think through um, opt like different supply chains, different uh, scheduling. So I spent a lot of time working with them um, with software products and driving efficiency of the day-to-day -day in the construction industry. And I started to pursue my master's in business uh, in technology commercialization after probably about two, three years in the construction industry because I realized I don't think this is the right fit for me. Mm -hmm. um, and then it's in Austin, Texas. That's where I was getting my MBA. Uh, I started to get connected with some people in the startup space. And then I made my way into uh, my first tech job, which was a merger and acquisitions project management role. Mm -hmm. Because of course, in construction management, your, your primary focus is project management, getting everything on track and delivering things on time and under budget. So people are like, okay, well, we definitely want to manage these multi-million dollar mergers and acquisitions like a big project. So that was a nat natural fit. I was quickly promoted at that company to manage a project management office mm -hmm. and was, was assigned with this idea of streamlining operations. For some reason, the, um, the leadership and the organization were, really had an affinity for someone who brought an outside perspective. I feel like a lot of the people that were in that organization grew up in tech and didn't have a diverse thought of like how to make things more efficient. Mm -hmm. So I found that uh, I was delivering incredible results 
and we we made a really successful exit at that company. So that company uh, had a strategic exit, and then I started to get the itch to build something new. So a big passion of mine is to build things, uh, to improve things, to continuously drive uh, effectiveness across organizations. So I I connected with another startup in the in the area, and there was a little bit of a different focus. They started to focus on product implementation. So it was more like the customer success side and how to deliver and implement products effectively. Uh, I was, again, promoted really quickly at that company. And then uh, we were bought. We made another successful exit. I actually stayed with this company because uh, it was an equity company that I was familiar with. um, And I was promoted into a director of product role and was, was acting chief of staff for both the product uh, chief product officer and the chief technology officer. Uh, in that role, my whole focus was how do we get our product to market as fast as possible with the best results uh, for our company? And what was really interesting about this is I spent a lot of time trying to think about all the bottlenecks and the pain points of our developers, engineers, product mm-hmm. managers, product designers, and how to improve our throughput to deliver the most value for our, com- for our, for our customers. Uh, so that was a very exciting role. It's funny actually, because we, we write a lot at Future of SaaS about um, how transferable skills from non-SaaS backgrounds can really help. And I can definitely see how something like being in construction, where obviously like, you know, if you, if you don't take into account things like budget, things are really, really going to go wrong. Like you're not just talking about a product not being promised, not being fulfilled. You're talking about, you know, it's literally like things, things aren't going to get built on time. You know, there's so many different things at stake. So I can certainly see how that kind of pressure that you are under in that kind of role would be a great transferable skill to kind of product management in, in the SaaS sector. That pressure that you're talking about is really acute in construction because if you miss a sequence, um, it's just like when you're building a software product, if you don't test something right and you deliver that to your customer and it's not a verified solution, people's safety and, and yeah. uh, usability are at risk for building. And yeah. there's a little bit more urgency and pain than in software because yeah. there's a lot of regulations and code, but it's definitely, you're absolutely right, transferable for sure. And also just having, I mean, just managing teams of people under high stress is, is such great experience. Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, and that is, it sounds obvious to say, but that is what your job is all about really, isn't it? Is managing so many different creative types with all the different ideas, bringing it together into one cohesive vision. Absolutely, absolutely. And then how to keep people who are not necessarily interested in close enough because they have the authority to change things. That's a big balance, I think, as a product manager and uh, and construction management too, because if somebody comes in and they don't like the paint palette you selected, well, sorry, that's just, you know, we have this building painted already. We can't just change that. So how do you keep people close um, while still managing um, the, the scope that you're expected to deliver? Yeah. So that's, a, that's, that's kind of the, the, the gist of where I, where I've, where I've been, where I've, gone and at GitLab, uh, they reached out to me to, to run their senior product management uh, for release management. It was delivering a product. So I took a step down from a director role into the senior product manager role to build a new product. Um, mm. But I've been at GitLab for almost three years and I've been promoted into a director of product position again. <laughs> so that's where I am spending my time now building product teams and delivering um, the GitLab value to our customers for 
a particular segment of our platform, which is continuous integration and package. Right. Yeah. So you, so you have to be really aware then of, of it's not just, it's one particular segment of your audience as well that you're dealing with. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that leads me on to what I was going to say next is just, you mentioned about how you've sort of become mindful of, of what the customer pain points are. And that's been part of your journey to sort of excelling in this, in this career choice. How important is it to capture the voice of the customer? How important is it to set up that sort of continuous feedback loop between the customer and the org? When I hear this question, it, it really brings me back to when I read books like Inspired or The Build Trap, because when you are starting to build a new product or you're starting to think about a product hmm. um, meeting your customer's needs, you ultimately feel like you should be delivering exactly what the customer says, but that's yep. not always what's going to leave, like lead for success um, mm -hmm. in the end. Customer feedback and incorporation of their feedback should definitely be one input into the product development lifecycle, but it can't be the only one. So customers will ask often for what they need now. And when they ask for something, they already have a solution in mind. Uh -huh. So if you are building what they're saying, you might not deeply understand the pain points, the workflows, and then you can't build the next step because you're waiting for them to tell you how things should work. So it's important that you deeply understand how their user, their dreams, their pain points, their desires, their joy, um, what's delightful for them, because then you're going to be able to create an expanded product versus solving just their problem that they have right now at the moment. So I suppose maybe there's there's a little bit of kind of interpretation in terms of what you're hearing from them. You're not just taking it at face value. So you're interpreting from what they say they want, you're interpreting kind of what they actually need a little bit. Absolutely, maybe. yes. Yeah. yeah. And I would even say there has been several times in my career where I have not built what a customer said that they wanted because it was not the right fit for our product. It wasn't going to be usable by many of our other customers. So that has been something that goes in the future request backlog, but then we build everything else that's going to be right for where our company's going um, rather than what that one customer needs or, or wants. Yeah. And that's, that's a, a big important aspect, isn't it? It's not like, it's not just taking everything on board. We all like to say, oh, we listen to our customers. We listen to their concerns. But there's a certain level of prioritization that has to occur if you're going to get anything made. Well, it's and that's why it reminds me of the build trap because the build trap is about um, just knocking down this checklist of features and building out this product based off of what people are telling you to build. But then in the end, you're just chasing this endless loop of shipping and you're not building in the real value that's going to make your product sticky, that's going to make people want to purchase more for your product. You just become... A, a almost like a, a request for purchase, request for an RFP checklist rather than a, uh, a meaningful product that helps change the way people work. I think it's also like when you get an update on your Apple product or your cell phone, um, you weren't necessarily interviewed for that. And sometimes you never knew you needed something like these yeah. updates that come out um, until you start using them. So that's how you, you have to really consider that as a product manager. You can't take exactly what the customer is saying and build it at face value because you need to validate that and you need to consider it in context to your greater strategy. I think, well, maybe this is more of a marketing thing that I'm, I'm thinking of now, but I'm thinking of like, I use Apple products and yeah. sometimes I do get feature updates 
and I kind of look at it and I go like, I didn't ask for that. Like, what? <laughs> and it just becomes like a little bit annoying. So maybe that's like an example of how maybe a product isn't quite in line with how what the customer wants. Because if it was, then maybe I would respond better to that, or maybe I would yeah. I would already anticipate that. I don't know if there's a bit of a gap there. Yeah. Yeah, I love I love this the way you're going down this road because maybe you're not the target audience for that feature. Right. So maybe they're looking at a particular segment of Android users and they're trying to get the Android user over to Apple. So yeah. that's where you as an Apple user, you're getting this feature and you're like, this is so useless for me. Well, <laughs> you're not you're not the user for that. You're not the target market. So yeah. there, there could be other people that are specifically targeted for that feature set that would convert over to Apple um, after they see that feature there. So that's where it's also hard because then you, you, as a product manager, when you prioritize, you are targeting specific people, specific users, and you're leaving others yeah. off, to, off to the side. And so I might be one of the off, off to the side people in that situation. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That, and that's kind of hard to hear because you're like, well, I'm paying all this money for this product. So they should be always investing in what I want for the product. But that's, that's not how a strategy works, right? Yeah, I see. Yeah, I completely, I completely see what you're, what you're saying there. <laughs> Um, so that kind of leads me on nicely, actually, because I, I'm thinking I, I I was talking about Apple products, but then I guess Apple are kind of they're making products for kind of a bit more of a or for lack of a better term, like kind of normie audience, like somebody like me who's, you know, Apple products are famously kind of quite optimized for people who maybe aren't very tech savvy, perhaps. Um, and so maybe, you know, the the, the maybe kind of um marketing or messaging that kind of addresses the the kind of outcomes of what's going to happen when you use this is more effective but with GitLab of course you're you're targeting developers which is a very very different kind of persona um altogether um so that leads me on to what I was going to say was is that we're always hearing about how how developers are are this quite discerning kind of audience that are quite kind of they're quite difficult to engage with um especially for feedback you know especially because they're, they're just often so busy you know <laughs> so I was just wondering yeah. is that is that is it a unique challenge because you've had experience obviously managing other teams and dealing with other kinds of customers is dealing with developer customers a, a, a unique challenge or is it is it just same as always same rules apply I really like this question and sometimes I uh I reflect back on this on this particular ask, like are developers a unique audience that you have to use different skills to build for? Um, I don't think you have to use different skills, but you do have to think about uh, what a developer's task is and what's specific to that user, just like any other end user. So at my previous company, I was in MarTech and there are technical marketing professionals meaning mm -hmm. that they create their social media campaigns. Yeah. They are very much disciplined for their tools and they understand the fire hose ingest of Twitter and Instagram and all those things where they're very technical in that discipline. And if you don't listen to what they need, the solution is going to be better solved with the, they're, they're, the, the solution to the problem is gonna be better solved by another, another competitor product. Mm -hmm. When I think about business um, to business SaaS companies and the organization pain points that they have, that is distinctly different than an individual developer. Mm -hmm. 
And there are now roles in some of these B2B companies that are exclusively for things like developer experience. So we're starting to see this emergence of developer evangelism, uh, chief technology officers with directors of developer experience, because they are very much focused on how to improve that throughput and how to optimize the workflow for the developer, because let's face it, every company is becoming a technology company. Every mm-hmm. company has an app almost. I feel like I had my dry cleaning has an app. <laughs> so like it's at grocery stores with COVID had apps. So it's, there's every company is, is using technology, has developers on staff. And as we, as, as we start to think about that evolution of how companies are going to be successful, the best way for them is to drive efficiency for that, that product. But when we are engaging with a developer persona, uh, I noticed that there's something specific to, um, they kind of have like a BS factor. So I would say like the typical marketing um, speak, the typical um, pitch to them isn't as successful as it may be to a different user. So Mm -hmm. a developer is very specific to, I need to accomplish a, a, a type of task and I need to make that as fast as possible. So the marketing to a developer is going to be about efficiency and it's going to be about optimizing mm-hmm. um, and it's been about how to save them time because developers are constantly um, doing things differently and using different technology products to make their job faster and better. Because mm-hmm. in the end, that's what their value is, is how to ship products as fast as possible with the highest quality and security as possible. Yeah. I suppose um, it's worth noting you're not dealing with an audience where it's, you know, it's not about leisure. The, the, mm-hmm. the, it's, it's, it's products that they're going to use for their workload, right? So Absolutely. That, so, I mean, that's probably true of a lot of different SaaS products as well. But in particular, when it's very high kind of intensity, rigorous work, like, like software development is, I imagine okay. that, that efficiency is, is really paramount. Yeah. And it's, and it's also interesting because when we're thinking about developers, they are getting pressures from the market, from their, from Mm -hmm. their, their employer. Uh, And sometimes those trends that are exciting from an executive get pushed down to the developers. So for example, a year ago, chaos testing was super hot and people were like, oh, we need chaos testing. We absolutely need to be able to test in live production environments and inject a stimulus and make sure that we're able to evaluate the efficacy of our code in real time. But um, once we started to really dig into what that pain was and why chaos testing was so important, so urgent for them, we started to realize that actually they're looking for a platform that allows them to plug and play different testing providers so that they can integrate the latest and greatest and the next best thing. So the pain wasn't, oh, I need this particular feature of chaos testing because Gitlab could have built that. Really, they wanted a software development kit that allows them to plug and play these different providers. So GitLab strategically can think, okay, well, do I want to build out chaos testing? Is that where the next best bet is? Or do I want to build out this platform that allows us to play, plug and play with all the testing providers? So that's where you integrate thoughtfully and GitLab. That's one of our principles. Um, but if we took the developer's ask, which was I'm raising my hand for chaos testing and we built that, the next thing, which is what, what we're testing on security testing, um, we would be chasing that next best thing instead of building out a platform for them. Yeah. So that goes back to, again, kind of interpreting um, needs and concerns correctly so that you don't end up going off 
down the wrong path because there can be a big cost for that i suppose you know as a, as a product management if you interpret kind of a, a need or a pain point in the wrong way and then you end up going off down the wrong point that's a lot of that's a lot of time wasted and it's a lot of money wasted right like, <laughs> especially if it's not especially if it's not used in the end so like if yeah, chaos yeah. testing wasn't going to be adopted then we could have spent months or quarters building out that feature set when really the developer's like oh my cto doesn't want that anymore <laughs> Like, oh gosh, okay, sorry. <laughs> yeah. So is the um this is that you you touched on this very briefly, um, which was the, there is a, a gap, I think, between um users, the people who are actually using the product, the developers in the company, and then there is the there are the actual buyers themselves. So these will be mm -hmm. the kind of senior stakeholders in the in the organization. And I'm just wondering, like, when you when you set about building your product products and solution. How do you balance those two? Because obviously they're, they're both really crucial in a way. You want the person to, you want them to buy the product, but also you want, they need to buy something that the developers are actually going to be able to use. So where's the, where's the kind of balance there? How do you integrate those two? Yeah. So there's a couple of different mechanisms that I've used in the past. This is more of a portfolio management question. How yeah. do you um, stack rank? objectively your different features and different needs uh, for investment so that in a year you're driving as much value for your organization so this has been called in the past like power scoring or um, stack ranking or investment cases mm -hmm. buyers are definitely a really important piece of that what we're noticing in the in the technology space especially when it comes to devops tools is that the buyer has less authority than in something like marketing solutions or even education and like municipality uh, software needs. The buyers are typically super important in those two spaces, but for technology purchases, there's this process of the CTO um, looking at their teams and asking their teams to evaluate solutions technically. Mm -hmm. So GitLab is fortunate enough that we do start to see an edge or an advantage of being a developer first product because developers can be our buyer or can sway the buyer, the traditional buyer persona, which would be like a VP of technology or a, a director of technology, or even a, a chief technology officer. When we're starting to think about platforms, uh, CTOs are very interested in saving money on tools and buying one solution for their entire organization to use. So, that's one way is to think about how to incorporate your personas into your investment cases and making sure that you're prioritizing those investment cases based off of the value they're driving. Because sometimes if you're building out, let's say you have a free offering and you have a paid offering mm -hmm. and you do have an investment case that says, hey, we need to uh, improve all these features on the free side because it's going to increase our conversion by 2% to paid. And then you have another set, which is, I want to invest a bunch in my, my premium offering, my paid offering, which is going to be geared towards your buyer persona, people who are purchasing your product. And it's going to increase our revenue by 5%. Well, if you were to look at conversion from free to paid, that could be a million users. Mm -hmm. And this 10% revenue might be way less than the conversion. So that, that, product manager may decide I'm going to place my bet and free so that I can optimize conversion to get more value for the organization, which in the end is revenue rather than investing for the buyer 
to make them either retain or buy more. So that's the balance there is if you keep your eye on the prize, which is what are we trying to drive for the company and then weigh those two options, that's how you know whether or not you want to drive for the buyer or drive for the user. Uh, that's really interesting. And obviously the, the, there, is, there is overlap between the buyer and the user mm-hmm. as well in terms of- In the, in the tech space, definitely. In yeah. other spaces, there may not be like um, government, that no nobody gets asked. <laughs> Can you look at our fintech product in the government? Because that's all contract based. That's all a checklist, request for proposal, purchase because you fit in our budget. This isn't, you know, that's not not the tech space. The tech is absolutely influenced by the developer. That's great. Yeah. So um, I was wondering then at particular about obviously building products. It's so important that you kind of that that's an essential part of building the product. Um, but is there a process in place for this happening? Like for, I mean, is that what the job entails all the time or do you have, I don't know, some kind of, do you have teams that are dedicated to collecting feedback or do you have a database where it's stored? How is that actually, what is the process for actually gathering feedback and gathering demands and requests? Wow. So that's a, that's a meaty question because at other organizations, it's going to be very different. So I'll take GitLab first and then I'll kind of talk how that's different at other organizations. So at GitLab, there's a dedicated user research team. And this user research team will typically help product managers and product designers think through um, their roadmap horizons and understand what needs um, a particular research project in order to understand a user or buyer's need to help determine whether or not we should build something. Then in the day-to-day product manager role, a part of a product manager's roles and responsibilities and what they're evaluated on as a product manager is their ability to continuously interview customers and users and help that um, prioritize their products. GitLab also has a huge community following that we interact with, with developer evangelism, but also with our fully open issue tracker where any user, any customer, any spammer <laughs> can submit an issue and a, a product manager can take that issue and refine it and prioritize it against the entire backlog. So that issue tracker is really essential uh, for a product manager because that's how we look at the, uh, the population of issue requests, bug fixes, and help us think through what does the community, the broader free user base need against what someone who's paying needs. So that's the landscape inside of GitLab where we have a research team and then product managers are expected to do interviewing and build out their own solution. There's different cycles of planning that are important to consider here. On the portfolio side of GitLab, we have an annual roadmap exercise where we take investment cases from the the prior year into the current year, and we start to assess the value that those investment cases are going to drive. And then we look at our budget and we look at what our teams are staffed to, and we kind of re-swizzle teams and reallocate people so that we're driving value um, with these high level initiatives or investment cases. So they're not perfect sciences. They're just like, hey, this is going to be um, a roundabout number what we think we're gonna drive. And then we try to staff to that at an annual level. And then there's the product manager. Uh, A senior product manager is expected to have a year or more 
roadmap plan. A group manager is expected to have a, a vision, which can be a three-year horizon. Someone of, of my level, a director, is expected to have like a five-year to even like 10-year uh, story arc or vision for what we're trying to drive with the GitLab product area. So all of those um, have different needs and requirements for, for interviewing customers and thinking about uh, the problem sets so that they can be adequately planned. Um, when I'm having a customer conversation with where I want the product area to be, that's five years from now, I'm typically getting a mix of the buyers, a mix of an end user, because I need to know where to move the product forward. Um, but also industry analysts are really important to that five, 10 year vision, because they're going to be able to say, well, the market's expected to grow X billions of dollars and that helps assess that. But a senior product manager is just gonna care about what's in the year. So they're gonna look a lot at competitive analysis. Yeah, yeah. What are my competitors doing? Um, what are the biggest pain points that are unsolved in the market today? And then of course there's mergers and acquisitions. Are there adjacent open source offerings that we could build into our product that we can make instead, that we can partner with, that we can then purchase? So there's a lot of things that go into how do we holistically look at um, those investments and, and think about it meaningfully. Yeah, I imagine, you know, it really interests me actually just thinking about that kind of conception phase almost of when you think of a, a feature or I guess we kind of like to think of it as being like a like a light bulb moment, like a Eureka thing. But yeah. I guess actually <laughs> it's probably the product of like a continuous research constantly, right? Over time that's always ongoing. Yeah, you mentioned, um, are there tools or processes? There's a thing called a lean canvas. Um, yeah. There's a book on it, there's a template. And I've used this probably for the past five years for product development. And uh, it is extremely useful because you take that asset, you build it out, and then you incorporate additional learnings as you interact with new people as you go. Software products are iterative and living, breathing things. Yes. So as you learn new information, you deprecate features, you build new features, you enhance old features, you uh, ultimately sunset products. So there's lots of, there's a whole life cycle that it comes to keeping in this living, breathing um, thing alive. And you're absolutely right, is a continuous interviewing process. And I, I encourage my product managers to repeatedly talk to the same customer uh, about the evolution of their features, because if you talk to them once and you build that one feet one feature and you don't go back and revisit to see if it's like helping them or solving their problems, then you never close that iteration loop and you don't know what to do next or how to how to fix your product further. So that continuous interviewing with individual users or even companies is is really critical when it comes to building a successful long term product. Yeah, it's, it's one of the things I mentioned early on was, was that it, it's a feedback loop, right? So it's yeah. not just about getting feedback in the moment once from that one customer and then finding out what the thing is and going back to someone and going to someone else. It's about sort of establishing a continuous relationship in a way where the customer feels comfortable that you're going to be attentive to, to the, the fixes that they require or the optimization that they require or whether you know their lifestyle changes even maybe the product doesn't suit them anymore maybe a, pro a customer decides to churn and it's really like completely out of your hands maybe they've, they've become a different kind of customer 
because their job has changed or whatever. You know, there can be obviously many, many different yeah. variables there. But um, I do think perhaps modern technology, like you said, does make it easier to have that kind of relationship with how easy it is now to kind of log feedback, uh, to request feedback from people. It, it can kind of be this continuous living, breathing thing, like you said. And I suppose also, I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but when you're talking about things like prioritize, prior, ugh, sorry, prioritization, <laughs> I struggle with that word. Um, it's a hard one. <laughs> modern software is capable of kind of, of flagging and prioritizing anyway through things like AI technology and such. And also we've, we've been doing a lot of research into how customers can be segmented by segment, by technology as well. It can kind of, so you can, customer types can be set up by the, by the processes themselves. Right. Yeah. So you can use, I think, yeah. I think that's really interesting. And it kind of brings back um, like, questions of models and training the right models in your product to recognize those user patterns in order to effectively categorize a particular user. Um, there's definitely a whole uh, like product telemetry school of thought and ethical question on when you're watching somebody conduct a workflow inside your platform in order to auto detect what kind of user they are. Um, are you categorizing or missing opportunities uh, with, that, with that user? Um, if you don't have really great definitions of what people end up doing in your platform per type. Um, one of my favorite things that I've seen is uh, a software or an app prompt you to, to ask you what, what is your job or what's your title mm. so that, that they have um, your session ID attached to how you self-identify your title. And then they can see in the platform um, how you move through the platform. And then that helps them map the workflows that they think these particular users with these titles um, go with the natural organic movement through the platform. Right now, GitLab uh, doesn't have any sort of telemetry like that, but we do spend a lot of time um, doing unmediated uh, prototype walkthroughs. So we put out a, a prototype with a, a user base for a research project, and we watch how they go through that based off of the role that they have and what we what the role that we built it for. And that helps uh, verify if our assumptions were correct. Like, are they gonna use this the way that we thought they did? Great, it's a great setup for navigation. So for example, if a software developer, you think that they wanna go straight to CICD, you change a side menu, and then you put it in front of a developer and you see if they navigate as you intended to, um, you learn a lot about how much you think you know and how much you really don't know <laughs> in that in that setup. But and it's, also it's how really much they, how much they don't know as well, because sometimes yes. they'll, they'll tell you about what their day job is and what what it's like and what they're doing. But I think sometimes if you actually, I think if you could actually track what how people are spending their time, they'd sometimes be surprised. Actually, yeah, you know, for sure. So much of the time we're on autopilot, and especially if we're doing it for work and we're not thinking about how we're spending our time or how we're using the software that we're using. So actually data can sometimes tell a more accurate story, paint a more accurate picture than feedback can, right? Right, right, exactly. Yeah, completely, yeah. Um, so let's, let's move on to the next part of this, which we've sort of, we've talked about um, how important it is to track customer feedback, customer concerns and building the, the product. Now let's move on to the next part, which is I think probably what makes some people feel a little bit uncomfortable, which is balancing that with 
profitability that <laughs> um, all all important profitability um so i was wondering like when you in particular when you bring an idea or a feature into a pitch say with your most sort of senior stakeholders what is I imagine the things you have to be mindful of are those all important kind of met metrics KPIs. And I wonder if not everyone knows how to speak that language. Not every product manager knows how to speak that language when they go into those meetings. Yeah. So the biggest mistake that I would have to say that I've done or that I've seen product managers do is really oversell what mm -hmm. their product is going to do. And mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that the product isn't eventually going to get there. Um, mm -hmm. It's just, there's a, a softness to that payback period or a lack of awareness on how long it's going to take for us to start seeing meaningful results once we build and deliver something. And how long is it going to take us to make back our money once we build that feature? I think that product managers generally don't think in payback periods when they look at the opportunity. What they hear is, oh, I have a pain point and I'm gonna pay for this. But yeah. if you're a seat-based product, so if like GitLab, you have a seat and it's a price per seat and an organization has to pay for a tier, um, there is going to be a long horizon for an organization to want to um, up tier to the next level, which could be significantly more costly for an incremental feature improvement. So this is where uh, when a product manager goes into a C-suite and they say, oh, this is going to drive millions of dollars of revenue in 10 years. <laughs> but like C-suite people are there because they've managed risk really well. Mm -hmm. So they've placed their bets where it counted and they know what kind of risks to take and they know what risks to avoid. So I think it's critical that product managers bring uh, all the risks and a full picture without the rose colored glasses on what their product improvement is going to be doing for the business. Because sure, um, a short-term investment that increases immediate revenue or usage is really attractive, but long bets have to be made in order to be competitive in the market. And it, of course, um, have like a long-term investment strategy for innovation. So a tool that I've used in order to adequately convey this to a C-suite member is taking a lean canvas that I've built in the past and kind of create a five slide page, a five slide deck or a five-page readout of, uh, of that Lean Canvas, which highlights the opportunity, the problem statement, the target market, what kind of influence we're going to have on the market with delivering this, and then like a 50-page appendix, which lines out the business case, a projected ROI, payback period, um, projected usage models. And that really helps uh, put in front of the executives very quickly, like what is this going to do, who it solves it for, and what we think it's going to do over time. But then if there's questions about the actual model or the forecast, we can scroll on down to the appendix and show them what's, what's forecasted. I think that that has been the most successful way that I've had one, new teams added for products. So at GitLab, I've done this and have had whole new teams added um, or have, a, have an executive think about changing strategy because they realize what we are going to be launching a market isn't the right thing or right approach based on our target market. And it might be in, in a short-term hit if we're long-term gain. 
um, but short, sweet, and then all the details have to be provided at the end and make sure that risks are holistically considered and that the product enhancement isn't oversold. I think that would be the the gist of it. <laughs> yeah, because it's kind of, it, uh, you, you sort of, my instinct was to think that maybe C-suite individuals are quite sort of risk averse, really. But it's interesting you described it as you have to just be risk, it's risk awareness, right? So there's always going to be an element of risk and they're not risk averse necessarily, but they have to know perhaps how you're going to counter that if it does occur. So maybe you're just, do you have to sort of describe like what the worst case scenario might be if this goes wrong? I would say sometimes um, in the lean, in the, in the lean canvas template that I've built out over, over the years, I have this section of um, risks to the business and challenges. And usually those are like flags for the company to say, hey, we're going to, once we go to market with this, we're going to need to think about what this is going to do to abuse, right? Yeah. So um, meaning like, how is this going to be uh, abused by nefarious actors or what kind of vulnerabilities does this open up to the company? Um, or it's going to be a challenge. This is going to, this is not going to scale really well because of mm-hmm. um, the, the mechanism of the cloud or one of the biggest ones is uh, this is going to be a huge change for our, our customers. And mm-hmm. that is probably the biggest risk and the biggest red flag that I've seen execs shut down. Because if you're making somebody change their pattern inside of software, that is your biggest opportunity to lose your customer. So you want to boil the frog in many cases or provide, um, and what I mean by boil the frog is you want to make small iterative changes so that you're guiding your customer through the process of what you eventually want rather than making them change their workflow immediately. Um, But I would say all of those ways of lining out these risks and challenges isn't to provide what what we need to do to fix this or to mitigate it. You might get asked that in your presentation with the C-suite, but that's where like the C-suite could really be utilized is like, how do we mitigate this? So this is a challenge that I see C-suite with your experience, how have you seen this mitigated or how would you prefer this to be mitigated? Um, Because you as a product manager might not know what to do next, even though you've identified the risk, but it's important that you highlight it and then have the dialogue about it. Yeah, it's it's a great expression, boiling the the frog. I've never heard that before, but I I understood what it meant. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That introducing changes with customers is like... um, I guess that means it has to be done in small increments, right? Like it it usually or or has to be thoughtful. Yeah, like the boil the frog analogy is that yeah, you're increasing the temperature slowly so the frog doesn't know it's being boiled. Customers are the same way. Introduce small changes (laughs) so that they don't know things are changing in their workflow dramatically, right? Yeah, but hopefully we don't boil them. Yeah, let's not boil our customers. let's not do that no no so I'm wondering like um with with these conversations with higher executives when does this take place in the product process does this occur kind of early on when you're building the product roadmap because I'm kind of what what I'm wondering is when you're planning it out when you initially like sort of from conception to completion in the roadmap how early on is kind of profitability Factored into it with just kind of innovation or, or addressing needs? Yeah, good question. Every, every company is different. 
Mm -hmm. uh, some companies are a little bit more agile and nimble than others. So yeah. for example, at GitLab, we have our annual planning process that has that investment case for at the initiative level, but yeah. then we do Canvas presentations um, uh, on a continuous basis. So let's say that a product manager identifies that there's a new opportunity because of an emergent threat in the market. And then they present to the executive team or present to the product leadership team that I'd like to pivot my strategy to start working on this new investment because it's an emergent threat. Then the investment case, profitability, all that stuff is considered at that moment in time. And it can mean that they stop working on what they've pitched at the annual plan to start working on this emergent threat. Other companies have a quarterly planning process which is less nimble. So once you pitch that idea, you need to build it, um, yeah. even if there's emergent threats in the market. So that's a little bit more stringent and the commitment to what you are building. And I think this is because they do a bunch of like sales bookings forecasts around that quarterly plan. So people don't want to mess with what we're attaching you know, bookings numbers to um, if, if something does change in the market, right? So GitLab is a little bit more responsive to threats because our sales planning and quarterly bookings don't necessarily um, don't necessarily negatively impact our annual planning. We can always do a canvas and always make a trade off to start investing in like if sales does need something. Um, typically, though, we have the sales team sell what's on the truck rather than like <laughs> build a whole new thing and sell a vision. So that's where like late stage startup versus early stage startup and where you'll see um, building to win customers versus building with strategy in mind. So that's kind of the, the, the slice there. Yeah. And I suppose that it's going to look drastically different if you're, if you're a new startup, that's kind of looking to find their customer base versus yeah. late stage, that's looking to maintain, right. Obviously still convert, but obviously customer retention is, is so incredibly important. Um, right. And so, sometimes you hit your market share ceiling too, like what yeah. you, what you can, what you can reasonably service in that year and that yeah. you won't be able to convert. So yes, you're absolutely right. Like as a late stage startup, you have to acknowledge that you might be saturated at this time. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 100%. Um, so what kind of, when you, when you're building these things, like what are you, what, metrics and KPIs are, gonna, are you going to be looking at particularly factoring into your roadmap? Like once it's launched, what will you be looking at to sort of see whether it's go, things are going according to plan? Um, because I'm wondering like I, how aligned are your customer metrics with kind of your things like, you know, ARR, revenue or things like that? Or are they aligned or are they two separate things you have to factor in? Do you have to prioritize them? Uh, how does that, how do they all sort of integrate? Okay, there's a couple of different questions there. So I'll tackle the first one of like, when you launch a product, what are the metrics that you're looking at for? And I would say that it typically depends on the business um, yeah. and how the business operates. So some companies have a P&L, which is like a profit and um, profitability statement, a profit and loss statement for a product line. Mm -hmm. And that allows you to use metrics like revenue, like churn, uh, like gross margin uh, in order to effectively see if your product is being successful. Other products don't necessarily have product line P&Ls. They have 
like mm -hmm. GitLab a platform. So there isn't like a, an apportioned amount of gross margin that could be allocated to a particular product area. So that means that you're using different kinds of metrics such as system usability score, which is done on a quarterly basis with surveys, um, NPS, net promoter score, which again is um, a survey given to buyers and users of the product. Um, I would say from a, you launch a feature and to see if it's hitting your market, you use monthly active users or mm. weekly active users, whatever time slice makes sense for your, for your product offering. SaaS products clearly allow you to see things a little bit more iteratively, um, distributed products or on-premise products. You have to have like kind of a service ping back and forth with that product that the customer has to opt into. So you might not have as much transparency into the usage there, but monthly active users are going to be where it's at. And typically what you want to pick is a monthly active user metric that actually shows um, they are adopting that product. You don't want to pick like, oh, monthly active users of email sent using the product if you're a platform for developers, because that's going to be like a vanity metric that doesn't really tell you if the developer is consuming your platform. Yeah. Um, so those are those are different levels of metrics you use at what point in time based off of your business and organization. I would say, how do you balance all of those different kinds of metrics based off of your, uh, your roadmap and your prioritization? It really goes into um, what does the company want to accomplish? And sometimes this is typically done, like typically cascaded down using OKRs, so objectives and key results, or management by objectives, MBOs. So commonly organizations at the highest level will say, we want to optimize for revenue and therefore product, product managers have to decide what does revenue mean for my segment if there isn't a PL. So right now we use monthly active users and we have like a seat price that we then say, okay, well, we're going to optimize this area to drive usage or drive up tiering. And that's how we're going to optimize revenue for our, our company goals. Um, when we took a step back a couple of years ago as a product leadership organization. We realized that our system usability score um, has been slowly like declining while some of our competitors may have been increasing. Um, and it may have because we don't have firm data on that. We just know that from talking to users that they have a perception their product is, is easier to use. So we tend to then pivot, even though SUS isn't directly correlated with revenue, pivot to SUS so that we have a competitive advantage and that we're being protective against competitors so that our usability is better and higher for our end users. So that's, uh, I think I got all of your main questions, but. Um, yeah, it, it, it's interesting, yeah. isn't it? That sort of, you, you talked about vanity metrics mm -hmm. actually. And like, it's kind of how, I guess, just because a customer can seem to be engaged in your product, they're not, actually you know they're sort of like i guess i guess a a, a surface level sat, like satisfaction score mm -hmm. maybe doesn't correlate with whether they're actually using your product right or they're actually actively engaged or whether they're going to continuously use your product one of the things i i look about i look at a lot in my in my writing for sas at the moment is something called activation user yeah. activation score which is kind of i think it pinpoints the exact point when the customer actually sees the value in the product right and starts yeah. actually using it which i guess is is useful because that allows you to kind of then go back and optimize change your product 
based on where you're seeing customers fall off, right? Right. And that's called the AARR funnel, I think, from a growth perspective. That's like the acquisition, um, activation, retention, renewal, referral uh, funnel. And you're absolutely right. Like it gives you insight into at those key moments in the product usage journey where uh, where a customer no longer chooses to use your product. And if they're dropping off at referral, that could mean that they're not truly enjoying their experience or that the product is not highly usable, even though that they're renewing um, year over year or month over month as, a, as it were. So you're absolutely right. That is a really great metric and indicator to think about. It does go back to um, tracking that with monthly active users. So a vanity metric, could be just count, absolute counts, monthly counts of particular actions. That doesn't really tell you uh, if your product is being more or less adopted. It does say it's being more used, like that particular offering, but it doesn't say like, okay, this monthly active user, monthly active users affords you to see like, okay, my monthly active users are increasing or decreasing. And sometimes you may grow monthly active users more than you lose. Um, and that kind of indicates that you're not necessarily retaining. So like if you have really great um, acquisition, but not very good renewal, you might outpace your, uh, your turn, but you're not like over time, you'll start to see your numbers decrease in monthly active users because you're not retaining. And that's, that's a one kind of tricky angle to look at with, with those kinds of metrics. Oh, yeah, I see. So sometimes when everything seems to be aligned and going in the positive direction, it doesn't always, it doesn't always lead to growth, I guess. Yeah, like you could be growing at 20% month over month and then churning at 1% month over month. Eventually, like you might cliff at your growth and then your retention um, might start eating away at your growth. Yeah, I see. Speaking of of retention, like one of the things that I'm, I'm really interested in, and you did mention it, a little bit is customer loyalty mm-hmm. um, and yeah, sort of creating that trust and that customer, that loyalty with customers. Um, I was wondering, do you have anything like a kind of an, an advocacy program with your customers and how have you, have you seen that drive results or growth at all tension? Yeah. So we have, we have two kind of angles on that. We have our GitLab Heroes program, which is like our open source community of people who build and our and co-create our product. And then we have a customer advisory board, which is uh, hand-selected um, top accounts and representatives that we meet with quarterly to sort of steer um, the conversation on product strategy. So it's less about like building feature points, but talking about the strategy and co-creating strategy with them. What we do notice though, is that customers who are a part of the customer advisory board, also known as CAB, end up having more heroes. So individual contributors at their organization build for GitLab. Mm -hmm. So we start to see this virtuous cycle of like, okay, I have this customer advisory board member, which is the C-suite executive. And then the developers at their organization are contributing back to open source GitLab. So that's a unique advantage for us because then we're getting these products built for customer requests by their own developers into GitLab. (laughs) So it's wonderful because as a product manager, if the developers of the company are building it for you, then you don't have to really think about the requirements there because they're building the solution for you. And it's at no cost to GitLab because 
they're building in, in the product. And it just goes through the maintainer review cycle so that it checks out on like the health of the open source offering. So that's a, that's a unique piece. And yes, it definitely works. And I would say it's a part of our dual flywheel strategy and why, why free users and why community users are so critically important to GitLab um, and why we are open core and why we continue to be open core. It's so like kind of unique in a way to the modern world, I think, to the, like these online communities that you can have now that can yes. basically kind of generate advocates for your product free, really. And, you know, for free, basically, not, not always, but very often, you know, if uh, just out, and which is just, you know, off the sheer quality of your product. Totally. You know? And it means that as opposed as, a, as you, you have to, you don't have to spend as much resource on resources to, to convert new customers what better endorsement do you have than somebody than somebody who is not being paid to advocate for your product and yet they're saying look this is really great this really works you know yeah or who who, who advocate for the ability to build against it like that's yeah, even yeah. cooler because it's like okay you are you're not limited by that product you know you get to yeah. build whatever you want on top of it which is a beautiful thing um that is pretty unique to to an open core platform Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Um, I think we mentioned a few um, book recommendations early on. Um, I'd love, I think it'd be great if we could finish this conversation on maybe you could give us a few recommendations for resources and books where people could learn more about this subject. Yeah. So I mentioned the build trap. Um, this is how you can create real value as a product manager. Mm -hmm. um, I loved um, Empowered which is by Marty Kagan um, talking about how to think about um, building really useful, extraordinary products um, across like Silicon Valley, you know, like what was learned from Google and Netflix, the apples yeah. and how they drive innovation. Yeah. Um, I would say inspired is one of my favorites because it thinks about driving innovation again. I yeah. feel like as a product manager in the developer space, there's this constant tension between innovation and, and building products. Yes. And how do you, how do you make sure that you're thinking what's going to be next around the corner while still delivering on your, um, like on your product promise. And that, that can be really, really challenging. Um, of course, um, the unicorn project and those kinds of like DevOps stories and like um, how and the Phoenix project, like there's, those are two different books that were kind of around the same story of like IT ops and then DevOps. And how do you think about teams? And those are, are helpful context stories because those were sort of the, um, laying the groundwork for dysfunction of technology and how technology can help build um, build meaningful improvements in product if you're implementing it correctly. Uh, yeah, I think those would be my my top one hand books that I'd recommend. <laughs> Touch on what you said there briefly. The, 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 I found that really interesting about the tension between sort of wanting having an idea but then also having to stick with a follow through with the promise of what you've set out to do. That's really kind of interesting. And because, of, you know, I, I suppose it is a creative endeavor, um, product management, but there is that kind of that balance as you were saying between remaining kind of nimble and, and open to new ideas all the time 
and then at the same time being kind of a steady person who's who's willing to deliver on something even when they're absolutely exhausted with this project perhaps you know um <laughs> yeah you're, you're absolutely right and it you have to be mindful of it you can't let um you can't let innovation get too far from you but you also can't let it be the bane of the company's profitability, which sometimes you can spend all day investing in innovation and not see any revenue. I think it'd be really fun if we if we end with you giving us maybe your three top qualities in a good product manager. Oh yeah, um, I would say persistence and uh, confidence, and then resourcefulness. Those Is that what you would look for in interview stage? That, that is what I look for in interviews. Definitely persistence because that helps uh, helps think through, like they help really think through the problems at hand. And if you're not persistent, then uh, you'll get turned down many times as a product manager. And it's important that you have that confidence to offset the being turned down. <laughs> and the resourcefulness, how do you make sure that you're, you know, delivering, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I can imagine that's... Um... That's incredibly crucial. And I imagine it's a very rare combination to find in people, actually. <laughs> I, I think that's that's often why you see like there is no such thing as a product manager that went to school for product management. Yeah. Product managers are made in the field and they're made in experience. They're not made because you go to school and get a degree for it. And I think that's where you get things like confidence and persistence and resourcefulness because people who come from untraditional backgrounds tend to be really resourceful because yeah. they have to figure out like, how do I map what I know to be relevant for you? And that's, yeah, you good. learn the job through making mistakes and recovering as well. Right. You know, and, and putting on fires. Uh, and then that's how you learn to, to not venture down certain paths again, <laughs> but, <Hopefully>. also, <laughs> yeah, but then also how to fix these problems yeah. when they do arise, perhaps with someone who's more junior on your team you know, you can be a really great kind of, yeah, mentor as well. In that exactly. Way. Yeah. Exactly. Well, thank you so much. It's been an absolute privilege. And I think uh, our listeners are really going to benefit from this conversation. Wonderful. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And I'm really excited to, to see what kind of engagement we get on this. Me too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us on this episode of SaaScast. Please join us next time for more top insights from the leading minds in SaaS. 